0: This episode is sponsored by the One Membership by Template Monster. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the HTML All the Things Podcast, episode 78 Responsive Design Best Practices, formerly Web Design Best Practices, but um, I had a lot to say on responsive design as we were writing this up, so. It's now Responsive Design Best Practices. I'm your host, Matt Lawrence, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Mike Haran. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far and you want to support us, there's a couple of ways you could do that. You can support us on, or review us, excuse me, on that Apple podcast or the podcast platform that you're listening to this on. You can also check us out on that Patreon. We only have a couple of tiers, but that $3 tier will give you a shout out and we will list, or we will put a link to uh, whatever website uh, you're uh, advertising there. Uh in our show notes, we'll share that website out there, and probably the most important one is just to tell your friends um that uh or yourself that uh or tell yourself tell yourself that we're here and we're ready to be listened <laughs> to remember that I'm just getting over an illness, so please uh please excuse my constant hesitations but anyway um if you or your friends or yourself are ready to go a step further, you can join us in our discord server discord server is blowing up it's the B's and knees it's the it's the i don't know any other twenties uh references. It's the 2020s, so let's, you know, let's bring back the bees knees and stuff like that. But anyway, it's the Roaring Twenties. We're getting ready for the, the dirtiest of 30s, I would assume. That sounds really bad That's, in today's yeah. age. The dirtiest like of 30s. It sounds like it's everyone's going to be driving a monster truck and going to be banging. Which is, like, Idiocracy,
1: that movie? I don't know what that is. That's the, a movie where, like, what ha- what happens is, a quick aside, what happens is, is that the American population... Uh continues to grow bigger and bigger and bigger, but the more intelligent people have less kids, and the less intelligent people continue to keep having kids and so the end of that is everyone driving monster trucks and drinking Red Bull and stuff like that and oh. yeah
0: well, very okay. relevant to what i just you're saying. I just predicted the future and wrote a movie all in one <laughs> sentence, so I'm doing pretty good, but anyway weekly
1: uh, our walkly, workly, or wi- weekly pain point, Mike, please take it away. All right. So my weekly pain point this week is kind of relative to a different one that we had. Uh, I'm starting a different fitness regime. I'm actually starting to do some workouts. Uh, before on one of these weekly pain points, I was saying that I was kind of doing the intermittent fasting thing. So I'm still doing that. and Now I'm just adding a little bit of fitness to it, like 20 minutes a day. Um, I used to go to the gym pretty often. But nowadays, I just, A, don't have the time or the drive because of just how much work is taking up. So i just trying to kind of slowly get that portion, that mentality back, at least with, like, you know, the 20-minute intervals uh, with high-intensity training. So trying to move around a little bit. Felt good today. Uh, Hopefully, I do it tomorrow. Uh, What about you, Matt? Um, Well, I'm still
0: dying internally. I don't know if you can tell from my voice. It's getting better, but I am still dying internally. I'm hacking up a lot of shit. And I got like a real gross detail for everybody here. So when I wake up on most mornings, a pure yellow liquid drips like a fountain out of my nose. So that's, gross. that's real gross. That's a it's that's TMI. Yeah, that's a too TMI. Much yeah. And uh, I'm, I hope you all enjoy that TMI. But anyway, we're going to jump into this week's episode. This is a, a, a Matt heavy or a me heavy episode this week, uh, which is uh, segment one, of course, is just straight-up responsive design, and then segment number two uh, is going to be a a different input method, so that one's going to be a little bit more brief, because we found out there's a lot to talk about responsive design, and this episode isn't, or can't be too long, because we're about to have the room next to me completely deconstructed and reconstructed in terms of plumbing, so there's going to be a lot of banging, cutting, and everything else, so let's jump right in here before they show up with their hammers and whatever else plumbers have, and, um... (laughs) It shows how informed I am, and uh, anyway, so this this one might be a no brainer. So just responsive design, um, but responsive design is really critical these days, uh, with the virtually endless screen sizes okay. and devices that people use to access the web. Um, access the web with, you know, you got tablets, your smartphones, you got these like weird looking smartphones that are like of all different types. You got dual screen phones, you got foldable phone. Fo- like like, there's a lot of devices out there right now, and they're getting bi- and there's getting more of them now. So at its core, responsive design is of course making your layout so that it adapts to the screen size that it's being displayed on. And this is to, of course, prevent any issues with content being cut off, fonts and images being too small or too big, uh, padding and stuff that looks weird, uh, images that are wrapping around text. And then there's like text wrapping around like a six pixel, like little column on the right. So it's like two words, if that, in the wrapping, like per line. It just looks weird. So it's to prevent stuff like that. So I'd go as far as to say that responsive design is mandatory Uh, in today's landscape, Um, even as, even as, or even as, even uh, with like desktop PCs. So if you're designing something that you're like, ah, people are just going to be using this on desktop. First of all, people are going to try to access it from their phone because that's just what happens. And second of all, even in the desktop and slash computer monitor space, there's completely different Monitor options these days. We got ultra wide, we got widescreen, we got curved, different resolutions like 4K, 1080p, 720p. Then we got different orientations. So we got landscape orientations. Some people are lunatics and they do portrait orientation. And yes, I did call you a lunatic if you're using a portrait one. And I know Mike is. Excuse me. I'm I'm pointing at him. Excuse me. Yes, no, because I will have a worse UX to have the monitor look nice. And I'm a UX guy. I'm weird, and I know that's weird, and I'm pointing at you, but. I'm looking at you. too. I don't
1: understand. I don't. But okay, quick aside. I don't understand your beef with the monitor looking nice. Like it I looks. It, it I, looks having the inputs like the buttons on the side. What looks, buttons? Looks. What are you horrible. talking about?
0: Like, well, a lot of monitors have buttons. Like no, the no Dell. They don't. The Dell monitors for to typical office environment have the buttons on the front and on the side, like on the bezel.
1: No and, one and has so, buttons on the front or side. You're talking like 15 years ago.
0: No, but we're talking about offices here. Offices have not updated their monitors. I'm yes, certain. Yes, they have. I'm certain, certain that there are a lot of offices out there that still have front input, including schools, have
1: front input buttons. I don't know what you're talking. about. Anyway, my monitor has perfectly even bezels across all sides, and it doesn't look any different. <laughs> well, having it vertical or horizontal. The fact that it's in horizontal. the wrong orientation. It's not in the wrong way. Or- it's just in a or anyway. Okay, continue. Continue. <laughs> This is like the whole. Ver- this
0: is all like the whole ver- vertical video thing. Even Instagram dropped the vertical video thing, where they support it on IGTV, but they also support landscape because it's just ridiculous.
1: But now I can watch those vertical videos in full screen and get the full experience. It on actually, Instagram. works on Instagram. I can. Why do would
0: it. you do that? I um, don't,
1: but I can.
0: <laughs> well, okay. Anyway, moving moving beyond that. Anyway, <clears throat> some people do use it, portrait and landscape monitors, so you have to sort of adapt to that. Mail programs, for example, obviously need, really need, to adapt to that portrait. That's probably the most common use case for a portrait monitor that I've seen, a big old email client. Sometimes code there, too, but mostly email from what I've seen. Anyway, moving on from that... Um, The goal of responsive design is to ensure that your website runs and looks great um, and as good as it can on as many screen sizes as possible without compromising on features, content, or functionality. So as you know, back in the day, I'm sure, uh, maybe five, ten years ago, you would always have the mobile desktop or the mobile version be completely limited in in comparison to the desktop version. Um, They would, you know, cut features out, not have, they would have like a login, but then you couldn't customize your account, you couldn't change your password back in the it just, it was all different per, per website and per web app, but that's certainly how it was. And then as com- cloud computing kind of caught on and has, as people started using the web more on their phone and there was, you know, the web everywhere with LTE and the whole bit 3G, then it really started being like, damn, like people, people are using these devices. Uh, there's even SIM cards in some of these, uh, tablets now. We have to sort of have full functionality or near full functionality on mobile. And that's sort of where responsivity really kind of kicks in in terms of a UX perspective, in my opinion. Now, I'm going to try to change gears a little bit because there is sort of this different way to do it, and that is mobile and desktop sites. So these are when some websites and web apps will opt to have a completely different mobile version that looks different and has different functionality on smartphones and tablets. And these you, these mobile versions are usually rather limited. So you're able to re, you know request the desktop site via your browser. So you click like the overflow or whatever it is in your browser, click the overflow menu and say request desktop site. Um, but then your UX will generally be pretty horrible as it's not optimized for your smaller screen. Now, I know that some of you are going to say, well, this, you know, mobile and desktop sites having them separate actually isn't responsive, but it actually is to an extent, not the different versions themselves, but because there's different screen sizes in those versions. So they'll have a desktop version, one desktop version, but though that desktop version will shrink a little bit and will shrink to a certain like constraint. Whether the cutoff is 720p or whatever, that same website will generally load on 4K, 8K, you know, 1080p, everything in between, and then down to 720, and then it kind of toggles on to the mobile version. Sometimes, and you know, this is all based on the project, it'll actually detect what device you're using, and then trigger the the 1080p, or excuse me, then then trigger the mobile. So, for example, if you have an iPad Pro or a newer iPad that has a very high resolution. In general, it would load what you would think would be the desktop site, but it'll actually detect that you're on a touch interface or detect that you're on an iPad and it'll actually load that mobile version of the site. So it just depends on what they're doing. So what I'm saying is, is that there's responsivity within the desktop version and within the mobile version, but it's not responsive as in, you know, all the way to the biggest, all the way to the the smallest. And I'll get into that in a second. So um, it's important to also note that there are a lot of, there are still a lot of desktops in the world. So some of you might be saying like these... You know, separations from mobile and desktop with completely different versions is completely useless, but that, that's not necessarily the case. There are still a lot of desktops in the world, but having one in the home is no longer quote unquote mandatory because people can easily get by with devices like tablets and smartphones if they only do everyday computing tasks. And these devices, so the smartphones and the tablets will load in general, the mobile version of the website if it's applicable by default. Now, because this is the default version, because the the mobile version is default, it's important to keep in mind in terms of functionality, you know, how many people are really going to switch to the desktop site in their browsers on their smartphone or on their tablets? So how many people are even aware that they can do that? Consumers aren't aware of these options. And should your users even need to do that? And why I bring this up is because you might think, well... On a smartphone, we should really limit their functionality. It's a smaller screen, and that might be true. And then, because you're detecting a touch interface, or because you're detecting, you know, iOS or iPad OS, and you're not detecting resolution, people on their iPads, which are basically fully fledged computers now, if you have a screen and a mouse, if you have excuse me a keyboard and a mouse, basically you're you're limiting those people as well. And a lot of people, like I said, do not know how to switch to that desktop version. So now you're you're needlessly limiting people. And some people might just think your website sucks. Some people might think it's just horrible. And if people do not have a desktop computer anymore, there's no more comparison. So for Mike and I, we're kind of from the generation where, you know, internet wasn't even around when we were born, or like very limited. Kind of blew up later in our lives, where we were we were young, but it was still like later in our lives. And then, it, and then so we're able to sort of tell and be like, wow, this website really sucks on this iPad. We'll either request the desktop version, or actually test on our desktop. But people that are younger than us, who are using the internet, might not know that. And they might just think your website sucks. So it's something to keep in mind where your mobile version really needs to be good and needs to be fully featured or at least a feature as featured as you want would want someone on mobile to have, especially if they're on a device like a tablet or something like that. Um, one big example of this actually is actually Twitch. So if you want to do more advanced things on Twitch, you have to request that desktop site. And then it looks like it's all zoomed out and everything because it's loading this widescreen ui on your smartphone which is usually in portrait because it's supposed to be in portrait come on mike um poke po- funny again um but anyway because like normally people are holding their phone in a portrait you know functionality of course and so when you request that desktop site on twitch to do a more advanced function for your account or maybe you're a streamer and you're trying to do some stuff in the in the creator studio or whatever they call it there you, when you're in that desktop site it just looks really horrible and you have to keep zooming in and scrolling around on your on your phone which is absolutely useful which is like useful to do in a pinch but It'd be nice if it was just all responsive. Um, Now, there are a couple of reasons, of course, for having this separation. So if you're one of these people that have this separation and you're saying like, whoa, I have this for a reason, of course, um, there are reasons to do this way. So for websites that are extremely technical with a lot of options, features, menu options and that type of thing, for example, sometimes it's easier to limit users on small screens. Um, sometimes it, you, you just have to limit that functionality because the amount of options that you need or have just isn't feasible with such little screen, screen real estate. So that's having that just isn't work. That doesn't work. And that's why some apps and stuff will force you on your phone to turn it landscape for certain functionality because they need that widescreen or whatever. It just depends on your use case, of course. Um, um, this version separation can also promote an app that you've made. So if, again, if your website has a lot of options that type of thing, but if it also just so happens to be quite heavy with all those options, so it like you know it kind of chugs and it uses a lot of resources. Sometimes you want those graphs and those data that you're pulling in and maybe the, all the APIs are hitting, whatever you're doing, it might be better suited actually to a native app so you can utilize the full performance um, of a device like a smartphone or a tablet that you're on, but offer that but still offer that basic functionality, on your mobile version if the user is just doing some basics so as you've seen on many websites you'll see hey you know download our app like hey we detected you're on android download our app from google play or whatever um, or they'll just promote their app like get it on google play get it on uh, get it on the app store and that of course is uh, that of course is sort of a good uh middle ground i guess i would say that that of course is a really good middle ground because you can get people onto your app which is hopefully fully featured, but then anyone who just needs to, you know, sort of check in on your website can absolutely do that. Uh, now I'm going to move into what I kind of call or coined as a true responsivity, unless Mike has a, any yeah, comment be- on that.
1: Before you do that, I could have a f- definitely a few comments on on all that. Um, first thing is with, with the whole like um, apps be- or websites having a mobile version as opposed to just being fully responsive, uh, I have noticed that that's becoming less and less common absolutely. nowadays. Like, absolutely. Uh, I, m- I remember, like, probably six years ago, that was the standard for re- responsivity. Everyone had like a mobile version that was very limited, and then a-, a desktop version that was full, fully featured. And now it's more; it's becoming more of a more common to have a fully featured mobile version and a fully featured desktop version. Um, and I think that's because of a couple trends, obviously the trend of just most regular websites being accessed by phones more than they are by on desktop or in the same level. So in that case, like when you're designing a website and it's 2020, uh, and you, you see your audience being split or maybe it's more mobile. What do you design for first? Do you design for mobile first and then make a layout that supports desktop? rather than the the reverse, which was the the standard for a very long time. Like we we used to always design on the desktop first and then kind of adjust for mobile. But I think that is shifting pretty rapidly. Like I I haven't seen some design firms that will solely design for mobile and then adjust for desktop. And it works in kind of multiple different ways. Um, If you want to use the latest and greatest CSS stuff, like CSS Grid, for instance, uh, I know a lot of people if they will use CSS grid because it's not supported by every browser out there, but it's supported by most mobile browsers, if not all. Um, they will design their website to be mobile first, and then design it for the for the uh, the desktop to have CSS grid support. Uh, but what 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 happens is if it doesn't detect CSS grid support on the desktop, it'll still serve up the mobile site without CSS grid. So it's an interesting concept that people have adapted to kind of be able to, A, kind of go with the trend, B, be able to use the newer technology without fearing for like a, a dedicated experience for a lot of their users. I mean, again, browsers that don't support CSS Grid are becoming far and few between. Like, uh, I know Edge, I think fully supports it even now that it's switching to Chromium. I'm sure it fully 100% supports it. Firefox supports it fully. Chrome supports it fully. Safari supports it fully. And it has for at least, I think, two years now. So you're, you're getting to that like massive user base, but you still want to be able to support and not, not, and support those people that are refusing to update for whatever reason, uh, so that they don't see a janky website. And if they just see a mobile version of the website on a desktop screen, it's not going to be as bad as long as it's a fully featured mobile version. So it's an, these are interesting concepts. And as time goes on, stuff does seem to shift uh, in terms of what is a popular way to do responsive design, what isn't and stuff like that.
0: That's a really good, that's a really good, uh, sort of rundown is that those, those types of sites with the two separate versions are getting, or that's a really good point, I should say, that, that it they are getting more rare. And it's just because, like, why, cause you can actually forget and I actually get into that later in the episode, but you can fully forget to put a feature in one of these versions. Like, you're essentially making two separate websites that just have similar branding, I would hope, and similar functionality, I would also hope. So, like you can easily leave something out of one of those versions. Like it's the same thing with when you have an iOS version of of an app and and an Android version. Like even even Uber back in the day, like like a couple of years ago, it was actually at your wedding. Like we were trying to leave and I couldn't select multiple drop off points, but your one buddy could because he had an iPhone.
1: Because the UX was different.
0: The UI and the UX was different. Like, it just
1: wasn't a functionality yet on Android. Probably new on iOS at that point, but still. It it, it was, but it was buried in, like, three different screens. Oh, good. I I remember that issue because I had it, like, you guys had it, and then someone told me about it. And then I had that issue, and then I went in and found (laughs) the the way to do it on Android. But again, it's the separation of, of apps, like you're saying, that caused this issue. Like, if it was just one, you know, one standard design for both, then you know, the, my, my friend would have been able to tell you exactly where to go. Exactly. But since, since they have to maintain two separate apps completely, that's where the issues come up.
0: Right, and you're not going to, like, leave the iOS version sitting there for a month while you make the UX changes to the Android version, let's say, right? And then also the different approval times on the different app stores and stuff. Like, there's a lot of politics in there. So j- just having two different versions of, of website, you know, you're skipping the app store politics, but you certainly have sort of internal politics, and you also have to deal with like, well, we have this desktop version done. I'm not going to wait four months for the mobile version to be done. Let's push it out. And then you have this weird half and half version. Like one works fully, one doesn't, et cetera. So, but anyway, um, we'll move on here to what I'm just calling, quote unquote, true responsivity. I don't know if there's an official term for this uh, out there. If there is, let me know. But anyway, um, this is where uh, you have a single layout that dynamically changes based on the screen size that is presented with. So things like the content will scale and shift as the screen real estate grows and shrinks. The overall layout will change, change around completely. So for example, if you have an inline image uh near the top of a written article and you know text is wrapping around it, on smaller screens it will often change so that the image is full width and it will, you know, be at the top of the text and then the text will be beneath it. And this prevents weird squish text wrapping where you only have a couple of like you have like this little 10, 10 pixel wide column of text wrapping in this little corner where the words are all broken and you can't read it. Or it also prevents the image being too small. So now the image is taking up as much width as it can, that type of thing. Um, some of the most common CSS properties that change in a responsive design in our experience are things like the padding, the margin, uh, the display property, of course, justify content, align items. Those are if you're using Flexbox and that's what we primarily use right now. Uh, we don't really touch grid that much. Uh, width, height, those type of things, those are the things that really change a lot. Like you can, you know, you can kind of sacrifice some padding to get that layout to fit nice on a a smaller desktop screen and that type of thing. So those are kind of the major properties. Um, Now, like with the inline in inline image example above or uh, what I just said there, uh, most layouts are spread out with elements on larger screens being in line uh, with each other. So for example, a blog with a sidebar on the left, and then the screen sort of shrinks, so the actual full layout changes into more of a stacked layout where elements are stacked on top of each other, top to bottom, but, they're, but they are often expanded to close to 100% of the screen's width to utilize all the available screen space. So if you have like, let's say a 66% wide article and then a 33% approximately, of course, a uh, wide screen or a sidebar on the right. As it shrinks and, shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and those percentages get unrealistic. So where the text is too small and the sidebar is pushing it and it's all this. Now the sidebar will, you know, it's up to you, go above or below the, the your article. Whoop my mic here. Uh, Will go above or below your article. And then it'll go to full width so that your screen real estate, or near full width, so that your screen real estate is used up. But now you don't have, now you have a lot more scrolling, but you can actually read the article at hand and access any of the buttons that are in your sidebar. And, rather than have these weird, like, what's that say, you know, and they have like, you have to have turn, turn break word on because things are getting cut off. Like it's just a big mess. So those are the type of things uh, that that'll often happen. Uh, true responsivity um, will a- also differs from the uh, separate and mobile desktop sites, um of course, because most of the elements are actually made up of the same parts on mobile and desktop. They just change and, and change their shape and change their padding and their margins and their layouts instead of completely being a different site you know, instead of, a, excuse me, a completely different site being loaded. So it's literally the same, usually the same image. It's just that image is being stretched and, and squeezed based on how much screenplay is there rather than it disappearing in another whole different website with all different assets, you know, kind of come in. Um, now I'm going to move on to, you know, sort of the after notes of this, unless Mike has any comments on true responsivity.
1: No, no, keep going.
0: Okay, so ultimately... Uh, This is our opinion. We like to stay away from the specific mobile and desktop version layout scheme. We prefer to have our own UI layouts be completely responsive, uh, where they change alignments and sizes, like I said, to accommodate that screen size on hand without having to load a completely different version of the site. So this is to prevent uh, redundant coding of a variety of elements, uh, and it prevents us forgetting a feature in the mobile or the desktop version, like I said, and... You can easily just, and now you can easily just simply, you can now just easily simply, you can now just easily simply build out your website with a mobile first or a uh, desktop first mindset. So this is of course, depending on your project's use case or, you know, depending on what you think your users are going to be. A lot of people like Mike said are going to be mobile first, but if you're making some sort of graphing app or something like that, you might have all desktop clients, you know, you know, your market, you know, your apps use case. So you can kind of make it for you know mobile first, or desktop first, and then you can adapt that layout for all screen sizes without removing features that you may need. So our philosophy is that the mobile version should have the same functionality as the desktop version and vice versa with a few exceptions. So to sort of sum up those exceptions, I have an example here. So one of the exceptions might be that a smartphone or a tablet might have an onboard camera, whereas a PC usually doesn't. So if your web app requires that you take a photo and upload it to the site, Generally, the desktop PC or even the laptop won't be the device that's taking the photo. So you'll just need a straight up upload photo button so that desktop users can use a uh, photo on their hard drive that already that's already there. But if you know that a good amount of your users will be using a smartphone and obviously they'll have the camera right there, it'd be really nice to have the camera in your web app, which actually offers a more convenient solution to them taking the photo and then uploading from their camera gallery, of course. So for example, recently I rented a U-Haul truck, I returned it and they said, take a bunch of pictures. When I clicked, you know, add the pictures, it wasn't an upload pictures. It wasn't like I tried to take the pictures and then upload them from my camera roll. It was, it would just opened up my camera and I took all my pictures and then it just automatically uploaded them into the app. And that that way I didn't have them in my camera roll and they just, and they just went right into the app. So I didn't have all this like junk to delete, but then they got their information that they needed and it was just a lot more convenient that way. Now, uh, that kind of concludes sort of our overview. Like I said, this is an overview. There's a lot to, lot to go with uh, responsive design. I'm going to move on to uh, – it's a it's more of a more brief segment, which is uh,
1: different input methods. So so before you do that, let me just quickly interrupt you. Yep. Um, on Just on that last note where like our philosophy is the mobile – to have the mobile version have the same functionality as the desktop version – um, and j- just to enter another caveat into that is when you're building business centric apps, like for an intranet, sometimes a, your budget won't allow that kind of thinking and b the client themselves will say, Hey, we don't want our employees to use this on the phone, or we don't want our employees to use this on their tablet. We want them to use it only on their desktop computer. So can you do everything you can to limit that interaction? And one of one of the things you can do is when you detect a mobile layout, you can just kind of put a message up there saying, hey, please use a desktop site. Now, this is a rare case, but a lot of the times when you do get hired as a web developer, it's just something for you to know. Uh, you will be hired to do a lot of intranet stuff where like you're doing documentation for a company or you're doing sign up forms or you're doing like sensitive information collection, stuff like that um, for an internal department. And in this case, there are just like you can't get set in your ways where you're, you kind of fight with your management and try to get them to do responsive design. Sometimes you do have to, you know, give in and and do things not in the correct way that you think they are. So just be flexible is all I'm going to say.
0: Yeah, that's a that, that's a really good point. And and when you're dealing with an intranet as well, sometimes you're dealing with something very specific. Like if your entire organization has specifically deployed ThinkPad. Uh, hybrid like laptops that have like a tablet with a touch screen or they like, you know, they kind of flip over and they become a tablet and then they can flip over and become a laptop. Sometimes you design very specific apps for those specific resolutions and that specific use case. So you know you need touch functionality, but maybe not many people use it, and you have those internal numbers. So you're not worried about the on mass. You know that everyone in your company uses Edge or Chrome. You know that everyone's using this device, and you know that they might be using a stylus. So now you kind of have like, oh, they're not using their finger; they're using their stylus. So now I can use more, you know, touch interfaces that are good for a mouse. Those type of things. Like those are very specific for your use case. You know, you're not worrying about Jim Jimmy that has an old iPhone 4. You're worrying about you know your staff. In your environment, this is what they need. And in the future, if they buy the next version of the laptop that's bigger, maybe you need to you know, upgrade that app in some way to use more power or whatever it is you need to do, whatever it is they need to do. Um, now, with that, actually, talking about styluses and input methods, um, segment number two is actually different input methods. So with all these different devices on the market, there are, of course, a variety of different input methods that people use, but generally you'll be worrying about pointers, And touch. So basically, does the person use a mouse or a trackpad, that's the pointer, or do they use their fingers, which is the touch, obviously, to interact with your website? Now, computer mice are much more precise than touch. Uh, They're able to click on very small elements with ease, so users can easily go in there and be very precise, allowing users to perform, you know, the mice allow users to perform very precise actions with very minimal effort. So it's not like they're aiming the mouse. It's very easy. Uh, Therefore, your UI elements can be smaller. They can be closer together. You can also have more advanced, precise tasks. So if you have an image editing app on your uh, image editing web app, you can go and do things like resizing, cropping images, all that type of stuff by the precise movements of the mouse. Now, the same goes for touch interfaces, but I'll just give a quick um, contrast, compare and contrast. So for a touch, you know, you can't really see exactly what you're doing and like your fingers kind of covering up a bunch of the screen if you're resizing an image. So you might, so what happens is on a lot of image resizers and a lot of image editing platforms on touch interfaces is that it will snap to common, uh, aspect ratios. So you might still have free form functionality, but you're not going to get that perfect, like pixel perfect, you know, Oh, I'm like, you know, I'm cutting, I'm cropping this just perfect. You can do that with a mouse. You can do that with maybe an interface with a slider, but on touch interface, it'll often snap to one to one, you know, four to five, five to four, whatever, all the common, uh, aspect ratios that Instagram and everything else uses, because you need to sort of You need to sort of have that assistance because you don't have that precision. So kind of moving into this then, touch interfaces are obviously using somebody's fingers, which are much less precise than a small mouse pointer because, you know, your finger is, your finger is big. So this forces interfaces to adopt to have bigger touch areas and makes, it makes them ensure that buttons are not too close together to present, to prevent, excuse me, accidental clicks. And it promotes having prompts to confirm actions. Uh, this actually applies to pointers too, and I'll get into that. If a major action might be misclicked. So if you, if you just, you know, you're out of space and you have two, you know, touch areas, two buttons where the people are going to be clicking them often, but one of them does a major action and you, and there's like a little bit of a chance that there might be a misclick. If they're clicking, like, let's say there's two ob- two, one on the left, one on the right, two click areas, and they go to click the one on the right. And they they might click that one on the left. They might just bump it a little bit. And there's no way for you to fix that because of the screen real estate and all that you will, you're going to want to have a confirmation prompt. Where you're like, Hey, do you really want to switch to dark mode or like whatever that button does? Especially if it's a major function, if it's just something like opening a menu, it's not a big deal. But if it's like, Hey, clear your project. You don't want to have that by your Navicon, have someone accidentally click that, have no confirmation and they click it and their whole project's gone. Of course. So you don't want that. Right? So that's sort of, that's sort of why that is. And that goes for the pointer as well. Um Obviously it's not in terms of a misclick necessarily, <laughs> But it is in terms of a misclick in terms of logical misclick, if that makes sense. So if a person misunderstands what that button is going to do, or if they just accidentally click it, not due to like aiming wrong, but they just click the wrong button because they had like, you know, a little bit of a, a brain moment, then you want to ensure that they don't accidentally clear their whole project. For example, that's more of a UX thing, more less than a less a responsive design thing, but just something to uh, keep in mind now. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Yeah, uh, so just, just right on that topic, I've actually done some research into it before, uh, m- like minimum touch sizes and stuff like that. There are set standards that some people have put forward. And from what I understood, the minimum touch size you should have is like a 50 by 50, uh, pixel square or a circle, whatever you want to say, whatever you call it. That's the minimum one. But, Also, know your audience. So if your audience is going to be more of an elderly audience and you'll know it based on the project, you'll want to increase that touch size probably to like 75 because for them, it's their dexterity on a touch device is a lot lower than someone that's lived with touch devices. So you got to adapt to their things. And also a larger touch size will indicate a higher priority function. So if you want to promote someone to like, you know, check out their cart, you want to make sure that that cart is prominently Sized and stuff like that, and with that, the other thing that we haven't really touched on here, and we probably will have to do a separate episode once we have a little bit more experience on it is accessibility in general so there's a lot of different accessibility standards um across both u s and Canada, and if you want to build a site for like a government body or a body that's going to be dealing with potentially large amounts of people and needs to be accessible by all the people that are gonna be uh dealing with that site uh on a you know government level or whatever the on on some sort of level then you have to kind of go, go by these standards where like uh you have to label everything perfectly so that uh when they use screen readers the the site will read all of the, all the correct like options that the person can have. You'll have to use uh, colors that colorblind people can adapt to. Um, and there's many more, like, like I, like I said, Matt and I don't have like perfect experience with this. So we can't really do an episode on it right now, but I think sometime in the future, stay tuned. Cause I think it is an important topic to talk about. And it's definitely in line with web design best practices or, you know, responsive design best practices, like this stuff that you should know exists at least at the, at this point.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Is that computers like Windows and that type of thing have have been, you know, they've they've been very uh, adaptive and to like various various accessibility things. Whether you have a screen reader that reads you all the uh, options on the screen, to like like you said, high contrast and like all the different things like that. And Mike and I really don't have much experience with that. Like we're kind of aware of a bunch of the different things, of course, but we just it's just sort of. Um, as ordered, if you will. So if someone were to come to us and be like, we need this accessible by somebody that has this type of color blindness, then we would obviously put that mode in, do the research, you know, change the colors, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just a matter of a lot of the people haven't really been ordering that and a lot of it does come down to it needs to be government sites. Now, obviously this means you shouldn't be designing your stuff so that it's completely inaccessible, obviously. Don't make like touch areas so small that you can't can't see them or something uh, for people or like make it so that large print maybe works if you have like a font like adjuster that's for that that that's an accessibility thing but it is it is something important and and obviously we're just touching on responsive design uh and design practices here uh design and ui x practices here on this episode this would be like a nine hour episode if we went through everything so that, that's a good idea like we should do an accessibility episode because i am interested in how to do some of that stuff uh, honestly um but um for right now, uh, we're going to be talking about our sponsors. So uh, this episode is sponsored by the One Membership by Template Monster. Your One Membership, your web development kit, your ultimate web development kit. I can't read today. Uh, this includes WordPress and CMS themes, e-commerce themes, powerful plugins, presentation templates, diverse graphics, unlimited installations, 24-7 technical support, and one year of free hosting. Use our link tinyurl.com slash the things with our unique promo code to get 10% off that's html all the things 10 this uh, promo code and that link will be in our show notes and we do receive a monetary kickback for any purchases made using our link and our promo code and now on to our web news mike hackintosh
1: please take it away all right. Uh, So this is uh, something that I kind of want to talk to you, Matt, about and maybe the audience as well, actually. So l- let us know after the web news what you think. But essentially, I haven't talked to you about this, Matt, but what I've been thinking about doing is getting another hard drive from a computer and installing macOS on there. All right. Because uh, recently, Ryzen-based systems with AMD graphics, which is what I have, um, and AMD processors, which is what I have are becoming more and more stable and easier to create into a Hackintosh setup with the latest iOS, with the latest macOS. Um, so my current MacBook kind of works just fine. Like I have no problems with it. The only thing is that now that I've been compiling apps with Flutter, Cordova, iOS, it's starting to chug a little bit, which is understandable. I mean, it's from 2013 and I am throwing a lot at it. It still handles it no problem. It's just instead of taking like five seconds to compile a web app, it's taking like a minute or a little bit more to compile uh the Flutter app, which I mean, over time can can be kind of a nuisance because like I'm constantly, you know, changing things, testing things. So that, that's the only issue that I've been having. Um And it doesn't like... I've been looking at the hack, the hackintosh link for a long time and I've been really hesitant about it because of instability, because of the fact that it takes so long. And only now have I started seeing guides and tutorials where it's kind of like a, you know, step one, step two, step three, step four, you're done process. Before it was like, if you have this step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then go to step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then you have a 50% chance of it working. That's how I, I figured it out before, especially for uh, AMD systems. Now it's becoming a little bit more streamlined. That's why I've started thinking about it again. Um, now obviously. I want to use the power that I have on my desktop and the convenience of my desktop because it's connected to all my monitors. I can have three monitors going, you know, it's connected to all my IO devices like my camera and my microphone. Um, right now what I have, and I've mentioned this before in an episode is my MacBook connected to my main monitor, um, as a secondary input. So I'll, I'll just go in and change. The input to my MacBook's input, and then I'll have my main monitor, you know, output to my MacBook or my MacBook output to my main monitor. And then I won't be able to use my main monitor for my desktop computer, which is fine. And it works pretty good, uh, because of my, because of my, um, keyboard and mouse being wireless and switchable between Bluetooth and wireless mode. So it's been great in that sense. But what I'm thinking is I kind of want to just have a streamlined system where if I'm working on any sort of iOS stuff, that's my main, System at that time, and I'll just use macOS. And then when I, if I want a game or something, or if I want to work on non iOS uh, or non iOS or macOS things, then I'll go back to my Windows system with like you know a restart or something like that. So that's been my thought process. I have the other thing that I have looked into is VMs for macOS, and that, as far as I understand, doesn't utilize performance as well. So I don't really want to go down that path. Um, so there are obviously downsides to the macOS. The Hackintosh, which is, it might be unstable in future updates. From what I've heard, it's been like the last three updates have been very stable and seamless. Like people haven't even noticed the updates happening, uh, which is good. But obviously with anything like that, you're trying to hack together, it might be unstable at some point a year down the line, two years down the line. I don't know. Um, It might, it also might take me a lot of time to set up because I've never done it before. And that's really time that I don't have right now. Um, I'll have to probably do it on a weekend or something like that. So th- those are really the only two negatives that I see. The The other thing is I'll have to spend probably 80 bucks on another hard drive. I don't think that's really a negative because whatever, like that's the potential of me not having to buy another MacBook for a few years is nice because that MacBook is obviously going to cost me upwards of $3,000, Um, which, you know, I'd rather not spend if I don't have to. So my question to you, Matt, and to the audience, uh, you can chime in on our socials. Uh is should I do it or not
0: well, my question is is you do need mobile computing, yes
1: absolutely yeah, because of my travel
0: does macbook does the Macbook uh serve its purpose well enough for mobile computing
1: yes, that's what i mean like for the like I said, for the most part, I've been only using it when i like for the past two weeks for development right, and it's been working fine like i said but but All... like is it is it good enough so that it would work? Two years into the future, I think so because I, I don't anticipate doing anything heavier than what I'm doing right now. That's my thought. That's that was my thought process. Is like if I was going to go into you know data analytics and some sort of rendering stuff, which I don't anticipate going into, then it would be a different discussion for mobile computing. But I think as a mobile computer, because I'm not on the road all the time, like I'm on the road once every like two months or something like that for a week or so. It's not. I'm okay with the minute long compiles okay for now so yeah that's why i think like a year or two uh, i could survive with it as long as it doesn't die
0: well yeah like i mean barring i mean something could just die at any time but um i would say because of that it's probably worth doing assuming that the amount of productivity you're going to be putting into it you get out of it at least so we're talking about saving a minute how many times a day
1: Uh, On some heavy days, probably like 50 to 100. So an hour. So you're saving an hour a day. And
0: how long do you estimate the Hackintosh will take to set up?
1: I think it'll take me, worst case scenario, a weekend. So uh, like an afternoon on Saturday and an afternoon on Sunday.
0: And do you need, do you need a, so, okay. So it's going to take you, it's going to take you two afternoons. Now, do you need to update it? So you were saying the updates went seamlessly, but is this something where they just update it on you and it breaks? Or is this something where you're that's, like, I'm going to withhold? I'm, no, but is, it, is this risk. like, I'm going to
1: withhold, like I'm not going to update? No. So right now, from all the documentation that I've read, no one's withholding. Everyone's just leaving auto updates on. But you can withhold. Yes, you can withhold. But I particularly can't withhold major updates because Xcode uh, will not work. Will stop working after a major update. It's really annoying. Like every time that I've had to update Xcode to be able to support like the new Flutter version or something like that, I've had to update the OS.
0: I don't okay because I have
1: withheld before.
0: Now, if if you okay, so if you okay, so you need you need auto updates. You need the Mac. You need the Hackintosh to run like a MacBook or like a Mac in general. Like, just a Mac
1: for yeah. And I'd say if, like to to be a benefit to me, it would need to work for at least a year. Which isn't that much, but still. Well, how often still, like are these it, updates? Well, I think once a year.
0: Oh, well, I say do it yeah. then. When's the next update yeah. due?
1: Next September?
0: I would just do it then. I would say that's a no-brainer myself. Because in addition to this, you're going to get... It's an $80 hard drive. You're going to put a hard drive in there. I assume you're going to make an SSD. Yeah. Um But anyway, you're going to make an SSD, whatever. And then you're going to put this together and get it to work. And then the worst thing that can happen is it breaks in a few months. Or in September. And then you either withhold and see if you can get Xcode working, or wait till somebody figures it out, because there's people that are probably just solely working on Hackintoshes, uh, which are probably working for sites and stuff like that. Those are guys that are like, well, get hired to basically fix Hackintoshes, and then you'll just fix it. Now, I have a question. Why is it going to take so long to set up? If it's if it just auto-updates and everything, you're not like, like doing hardware addressing and stuff. So, like, what exactly... So because
1: I'm just giving myself some time in case there's issues. There should it shouldn't take me that long to set up. I'm just saying like worst case scenario if I screw up and because I've never done it before. Yeah. You know what I mean. And there are still steps to do. Like I said, steps one, two, three, four. I think there's four steps. Um, and there it could be everything works seamlessly and I get it done in less than an afternoon, or it could be worst case scenario, which I'm guessing would be two afternoons, where before, uh a worst case scenario could have been like a week out of commission, which is why I didn't even consider it. Now it's like, you know, if I can get it done over a weekend, I guess that's okay. It still sucks, but you know, I, I can, I can kind of get around with it. So I, I, I was also leaning towards doing it. Um, obviously, because I've been, I, I'm, I brought it up. I just, you know, I wanted to have this conversation because I think it, it is valuable to have for people out there that are currently running, maybe, you know, Intel-based systems work just fine. Now, AMD-based systems are working fine, so it, it might be a viable option for people that don't want to go out there and buy a used MacBook or a used uh, iMac or buy something new for you know three or, or 5000 dollars, $5, which is cost prohibitive to a lot of people out there, but want to have something that's running and they're able to say that they can do iOS builds or cross-platform development and stuff like that. So,
0: well, I, w- I'm I would say that that's back. that's risky.
1: What you just said right there is risky. If you don't have a backup, like yeah, I will have a backup. That's what I mean. Correct.
0: Like you have a backup yeah. where it's like, oh, sorry guys, it could take an extra five minutes. Whereas, yeah. whereas in this, where if, if you start offering a service on a hacked thing, I mean, I I know people are entrepreneurs and they're scrappy and, yeah. and you know they'll be like, ah, you're just being paranoid. But at the same time, it's like, I'm being paranoid. And then the backup costs you three G's. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like if you need that thing done tomorrow and you're going to, I don't know, you're going to go out and buy a, buy a MacBook or whatever. Or a Mac Mini, at least, or something. I don't even know what else, what's up to date on the Mac world right now. But like you would, you're going to need to go out and buy a an official Apple product at some point. And and if you don't, if you do not have the cash flow or the cash on hand, the capital to do that, that's risky.
1: But I get what you're I saying. Think it's risky. Yeah. But yeah, discretion is advised. So like if they if they see uh, the benefit outweighing the negatives, and they just need something up, and they just don't have the money at that certain time um it could be worthwhile now i don't know like i, I wouldn't rec- like i like you said i wouldn't recommend it right now because I'm not, i haven't done it yet personally all i have is based on like a bunch of different youtube videos and tutorials that i've i've kind of been following over the years that's my information i haven't done it personally so i don't recommend it but maybe once i do it see how seamless or not seamless it is, uh is i'll report back and let you know how everything's working and then i'll I want to do also incremental updates, so like you know, two months using it, is it still working? Six months using it, am I still you be able to use it a year after and stuff like that? So, stay tuned to this podcast if you want to know if a Hackintosh is possible to use for web development or app development in general.
0: And well, to be honest, a good a good thing for the Hackintosh is like the way you're doing it. Like you have an existing computer, which isn't exactly eighty dollars only. But if, if if someone has an existing computer that's similar to yours and then they buy an $80 hard drive or an SSD and they do this, if they're doing an app for themselves, like if it's their own app, then that's perfect. If it's yeah. something that is not time sensitive uh, within, let's say, a month, I'd say it's perfect. If it's something that you are learning with, that's probably the best use case, I would say, personally. Because it's just like, oh, damn, I guess I can't learn on this anymore. I'll have to wait for a, a fix to come out and I'll just watch YouTube videos or whatever you're doing to learn. That, that, those are the use cases I would say are the best. Like I would never deploy this to a whole office. No, like
1: hundred percent. There's no, there's no chance. Like,
0: Oh, I can't, my, my RAM doesn't show up. And like, I'm not like, as an IT. If anyone that listened to this is on IT, you know exactly what I'm saying. That sounds like a frickin' IT nightmare. This is exactly why IT guys do not change
1: things. Exactly why. Or build custom PCs. Like you should never – if you're an IT right now and you're sitting in your office and that your boss comes up to you and says, hey, we need like a fleet of computers for all the designers. Can you order us some? And you're like, oh, yeah, I love to build computers. Let me just build them for you. Stop what you're yeah, doing. No, don't do that. Don't do that. And call Dell or HP and order computers from them. Do not build your own computers for your office. The only The but only that time is, that
0: ever applies is if somebody requires
1: – for some reason a copious amount of power not even then i wouldn't even do that Uh, if someone requires a copious amount of power unless it's one person that's what i mean yeah like a team leader if if you have one extreme renderer or something like that that like everything goes through them then it's okay but if you're talking 10 people five people even no not doing it i don't care i don't care how much power they need I'm the IT manager. If if that's the case, I'm going to tell you that it's going to cost X amount of money. Dell has the solutions. HP has the solutions for ultra high power. Obviously, they cost a ridiculous amount of money. But you get the support with them. It's just like I, I've built a lot of computers. I've probably built 30 to 50 computers in that range. And even I would not never offer my services up to build custom computers for an office. And and that goes the same for Hackintosh and even more for Hackintosh because you do not want to deal with it. The only reason I'm doing it is because... It's just you. It's just me. I have a backup that's fully updated and all ready to go for a long, long time. Uh, and I think it will be interesting content for HTML, the things, and just ourselves in general. Like, I think it'll be an interesting experience. And I have a computer here that, like, is fairly powerful... I'm tech savvy and I think I can make this work and save some money. Those are the only reasons I, I, I'm doing this. If I was, I don't even know, like it's, even then, even with those four reasons, it's still a little bit risky because you don't want to have any downtime. Um, the fact that I have a backup is the biggest thing because right now I'm just so swamped that if if that were computer, if my Mac OS were to go down, I would be screwed for a while. So Thankfully, I don't have to worry about that too much. If I didn't have a backup, I wouldn't do this at this point, right? At this point in time, no way.
0: Yeah, that's a good that that that's those are mm-hmm. all really good things and like I'm uh, really good points and I'm sure that the people on on HTML things are really going to enjoy the content. Hopefully, I don't know. I don't know what we will make. Maybe some Instagram post or something. Um, oh, we'll talk
1: about it on the podcast. I think that too. Like we'll give incremental podcast updates either on pain points or web news or something like that. It won't be every week. It'll just be like you know once every. Or a weekly
0: hackatosh check no like. yeah
1: no won't be that but yeah let us know what you think uh i'm curious to see if you agree with me like should i do this or not um and if not let me know if yes let, yeah let me know if you want to hear more about it let us know obviously that too uh
0: yeah i think you should just snap a whole bunch of pics and i'll, I'll post them i think that would be good. Okay. like i mean admittedly you're like installing a hard drive so i mean it's not gonna be the most, the most amazing
1: oh. thing ever but I'll post. I'll, I'll snap pics of like the desktop running macOS or something like that. Yeah, stuff be, like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And your your like hardware
0: being detected or so, something. Something. Sure. Something action packed as as action packed as installing Mac OS could be. <laughs> oh yeah. But yeah, I would say do it. I'd say just go ahead, and do it right now. Like just order the hard drive right right this second.
1: I'm doing it right now. It's in my yeah. Cart. You
0: know what's crazy though? Actually, just a real brief aside with sure. with Amazon. I now do that. Someone's like, damn, if we don't have this, this is a real pain in the ass to go on Amazon. If it's cheap, I just click buy now.
1: I don't want to hear... Well, because it. it's so easy to return.
0: It's so easy to return, and I just... I don't want to hear about it, and there's no point in, like, being like, let's go. Let's make a Saturday trip to the mall. It's like, what if they don't have it? Well, then we'll go to Walmart. Like, and then it's like, what if they don't have it? Well, then we'll go to this other store. It's like, or I'm going to go on to Amazon and just order it.
1: Yeah. So that's it. I fully agree with that.
0: Like, like whatever. Or any... Like, for that matter, any online store. Like, Wish, although I don't use that. I yeah, do not, con- I I, I, I not condone I Wish because I never yeah, use let, it. Yeah, let's be serious. I think, yeah, I, I think let's, I've let's... used it once to get a free gift, but I've never actually ordered anything on there. So I don't know anything about that. Full disclaimer. But, like, if, if it's that easy, if it's that easy, like, I've used AliExpress before, that's easy. Like, anything that's easy, any online store that's easy... If, if you have it and we need it i'm just gonna freaking order it i don't care like that's it but anyway um i think that really concludes the episode um honestly um we came in a little bit under time than what i thought which is kind of nice because people are gonna come in with their hammers or, again hammers or whatever plumbers have so they're gonna come in here and start uh, destroying destroying some pipes from 1945.
1: Those are historic pipes right there. We have the, we have the original... World, World, World War II ended and people just started putting pipes in. Like, Well, this
0: was... Yeah, uh, let's get some pipes We, in we were told that this house was built by like a veterans project. So like they employed veterans from World War II.
1: Oh, yeah. There's probably some intense PTSD kind of happening while they were putting those pipes Maybe.
0: in. But like we... I mean, all the in pipes were changed years ago because they were lead and everything else. But then these are just the drains and these drains are just screwed at this point. But I mean, 1945 till 2020... So, we're talking about, we're approaching 80 years old. So, wait, older than that? How old is that? 2020 minus 1945. Anyway, I don't do math very well. But, um, I think we are, um, I think we're good to go. Unless you're, uh, unless you have anything else to add. 75 years no, old. No, I think that's it. Anyway. That's it. Uh, okay, well, uh, I'm not going to bore you anymore with our plumbing thing, so thank you for listening. And make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing on the platform of your choice. You can follow us on the socials via at HTML, all the things. That's on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow us on Twitter, which is at HTML, everything. We are on Medium and we're on that GitHub. And remember, we are also on Patreon. That's Patreon.com/html. All the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thanks to our three-dollar tier patrons: Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript. Find him at YouTube.com/RabbitWorksJavaScript. Garrick from Local Path Computing and Web Design. Find him at LocalPathComputing.com. Craig, aka Cosworth. Ryan Gatchell from Blue Black Digital. Find him at BlueBlackDigital.com. Chris from Self Made Web Designer. Find him at SelfMadeWebDesign. Tim from the Web Hacker, find him at thewebhacker.com, and DL Ford from DLFord.io, or find him at sorry, find him at DLFord.io. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on, and we are signing off.